Uh, How clearly you can see someone affects how you respond. How clearly you see someone affects how you respond. Uh, Some of you uh, may know that our daughter Alex is expecting a baby sometime in March next year, which is wonderful news. Uh, We've seen the ultrasound photos, those fuzzy black and white images, a shadow here, an arm here, a bump there. At the moment there's no way of knowing whether it's a boy or a girl. Uh, It'll be a surprise and so Karen doesn't know when she goes op shopping whether she's looking for pink dresses or denim overalls. Uh, Alex and Luke are not sure whether they're painting the room pink or blue, although I don't think that's Alex's sort of uh, desire anyway to go pink or blue, but you know, we, we don't quite know how to, how to prepare. How clearly you can see someone affects how you respond. Or perhaps uh, you invite someone over to dinner, but you're not sure what food they like, whether they have any allergies, whether they prefer an outside barbecue or a formal meal inside. So it's hard to prepare. How clearly you can see someone affects how you respond to them. And Luke's attention in this part of uh, uh, intention in this part of the gospel is for us to see Jesus clearly, to see the Saviour, to understand Him, to see His purpose, His plans, to know what to expect, so we can respond appropriately. In these chapters, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the city of David. There's revolution in the air. The Jews have been waiting for decades, for centuries, for a rebel leader, for a Messiah who will overthrow the Romans, who will return Israel to glory days. And the hopes are building that just maybe Jesus is the one. There's been a few hopes dashed over the previous decades The closer Jesus gets to the capital, the more the hype grows. Expectations are high. You can see the sort of thing that's being said in chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, We read, while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That's the expectation and so Jesus wants to clear up their bad eyesight. They're not seeing properly. They want a military revolution and it, they want it as quick as possible. But Jesus is bringing a different sort of revolution and so he goes on to tell them a parable. We'll, we'll look at that parable in a few moments but before we get there, let's look at what leads up to that story because it's more of the same. It's about Jesus and his mission and how we're to respond. So the section begins in chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus is making things as plain as possible. He took the twelve aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day he'll rise again. Yes, we're heading for Jerusalem, but it's not a political revolution. So don't expect a saviour with a sword because it's going to be a saviour on a cross. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't expect a saviour with a sword, it's a saviour on a cross. He's headed there to be handed over and then killed. But on the third day he'll rise. 
But the disciples who should be seeing, well, they're blind. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Did you notice that? Three times Luke says it. I think Luke really wants to emphasise that they just didn't get it. It's hard for us to imagine how they could get it so wrong. Seems perfectly clear to us with the benefit of hindsight and the Bible helping us. But the disciples who should have understood couldn't see, they couldn't perceive a saviour on a cross. And that's really not that much different from people sitting in churches all across Australia. There are people in churches that don't see Jesus like that. People who should know better, who've got all the information, who've sung the songs and hung around Christians for years, but they don't see Jesus like that. There are people in churches this morning who see Christianity merely as a set of rules to follow or a culture to keep or a standard to measure up to or something to dress up for. They see Jesus as a moral example or a good teacher but they don't see him as a sacrifice, a king, a saviour who demands their repentance and their submission and their life. Maybe that's even you. That's the disciples. But by way of contrast, Luke tells us next about someone who can see Jesus. And the irony is he's blind. He's a seeing blind man. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. The expectation builds. He's made it to Jericho. He's on the outskirts of Jericho, 25 kilometres from Jerusalem. And as he walks along the road, there's a blind beggar who hears by all the commotion, that it's Jesus. And so he calls out, verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone tells him to be quiet, but he won't. He keeps yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the king's title, son of David. It's a Messiah's title. The blind man knows it's Jesus. And Jesus is on his way to King David's city, son of David, on his way to David's city. Jesus asks him what he wants, but he doesn't say victory over the Romans, release from our captivity. Look at what he says in verse 41, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus gives him his desire, eyes that work because of his faith, and everyone praises God. The blind man asks because that's what Jesus came to do. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 4? Jesus stood up in the synagogue at Nazareth and he he quoted Isaiah and said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. That's what the Messiah is doing. Blind men seeing. And this blind man sees it while the disciples can't. Next up, we see Jesus doing more of the same. He's preaching good news. He's releasing oppressed people. We see the sort of revolution Jesus does bring. It may not be a political one or a military one, but we see the revolution of a single life. 
It's Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus too is someone who wants to see. He wants to see Jesus. Verse 3, he wants to see Jesus. This blind man had barriers that stopped him uh, as well. Zacchaeus had barriers. Uh, We read that he's a tax collector, a a supervisor, no less. Uh, More interested in money than being liked, in profit than people. And so everyone else in the crowd thought he was last in line for the kingdom. Second barrier, he's short. He physically can't see Jesus. The crowd's in the way. He comes up with a plan. He runs ahead. He finds a tree. He climbs it. He's he's determined to see Jesus. And that's what happens. Jesus stops right under his tree. Zacchaeus has front row seats to see the action, whatever the action turns out to be. Uh, And Zacchaeus turns out to be the action. Jesus notices him. We don't know why. Perhaps it was a rich man well-dressed up a tree. That's going to provoke interest and curiosity. But Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Uh, Jesus is the king who's come to preach good news to captives and proclaim freedom for prisoners. And Zacchaeus needs that like everybody else. He may have been last in line according to the crowd but he's first in line for Jesus' attention and it's Jesus' opinion that really counts. And Zacchaeus seems to catch a glimpse of Jesus because he jumps down and takes him home to lunch. I'd love to know what that dinner conversation was about. We don't know but we do know what the result was. Uh, There was a revolution There was a complete turnaround for Zacchaeus. The crowd had called him a sinner, but in verse 8 he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. He's seen Jesus as someone who's offered a fresh start, who's offered forgiveness and he responds wholeheartedly. The things that ruled his life, rule it no more. He'll give his possessions away. He'll pay back the money he's extorted. Our thoughts should go immediately by comparison to the rich ruler in the previous chapter. He gives it all away for the riches of knowing Jesus. Now that's change that only God can bring. Only God can do a revolution like that. The blind man seen the Saviour, the short man seen the Saviour and Jesus concludes with a clear statement of his mission, as clear as the one he gave his disciples only a few verses before. And I can just imagine the grin on Jesus' face as he says these words to Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to, say, to seek and to save what was lost. Seeking out and saving lost people. That's what the Saviour is doing. He's not bringing down governments. He's not raising an army. He's not plotting a rebellion. He's seeking lost people and saving them. And he's still doing that. 
But even as he says those words, there are people getting it wrong who are not seeing, who are seeing instead a different kingdom. And so Jesus straight away begins that parable we mentioned earlier. While they were listening to this, you see that? While they were listening to verse 10, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he tells them a story that they would have been very familiar with because it was recent history. It was from the recent history, uh, the pages of history. It was, around, it was in 4 BC, according to uh, the historian Josephus. Uh, around 4 BC, probably around the time Jesus was born, Herod the Great died. Uh, he left the throne to his son Archelaus. But before Archelaus could be crowned, he had to travel to Rome to be confirmed as king because they were the the sovereign power. But the people disliked Archelaus so much, they actually sent a delegation along after him to Rome to protest his appointment. And Josephus tells us that he was appointed king anyway and when he came back he punished those opponents for their insolence and he massacred 3,000 of his countrymen on the first Passover. So that story was burned into the memories of the Jews and Jesus begins telling that story. But then he adds some details. The man is about to head off and he calls in ten of his servants and he issues each of them one minor. It's about 60 days wages, let's say $10,000. And they were told to put the money to work until he returned. Now, It's not a huge amount of money. Probably it was some kind of test. Uh, You're on a trial. When I'll come back, we'll see how you perform. Are you up to greater responsibilities? Are you up to promotion? I'm going to need some suitable men to act as governors when I return as king. That's the plan. He heads off. He's appointed king despite the protests. He returns home. He calls in the servants Time to settle the accounts. The first servant has invested wisely. He's made back uh, his money ten times over. Well done, my good servant, is the master's response. Uh, He's then given his new assignment. Governor over ten cities, verse 17. The second comes in. He's made a uh, 500% return. His job is managing five cities. But then we come to the centre of the story, the third servant. It's interesting we don't find out what happens to the other seven, but we we stop at three. Uh, Verse 20, our third servant. And he says, Sir, verse 20, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Uh, This servant was scared of his master He knew his reputation, Uh, I want to say firm and uncompromising, Uh, firm and uncompromising. Uh, He didn't play favourites and he expected a return. The servant hated to think what would happen if he lost the money and so he tied it up in a hanky and he hid it away. And it's here we come to the so what of the whole section, the whole section we've looked at this morning. Uh, What it means to respond to Jesus when you see him. 
Look at how the master answers. I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? He doesn't deny the servant's assessment. His point is, if that's what I'm like, then the least you should have done was to earn me some interest. And so the servant fails the test and is given no greater responsibility. He can't be trusted with one minor, so who would trust him with one city? In fact, even the little that he had was given to the first servant. Uh, Verse 24, take his minor away, give it to the one who has ten. They said, he already has ten. The master replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And then the story concludes with the fate of the rebellious citizens. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's an unusual parable, isn't it? Because normally parables have one point at which we work out what the meaning is but this one seems to have two. We've got two servants who receive a well done and are given more responsibility. One servant who loses the little he has but doesn't seem to be punished and then we've got a group of citizens who are put to death. So what do we do? What's the point of it? Well we need to remember the context. Jesus is telling this parable to people who thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And Jesus is saying, the truth is, like the nobleman, I'm going to be gone for a long time. The type of kingdom you're thinking of is not going to come like this. There's going to be a delay. Jesus is going to a faraway country and he will return one day as king and judge to settle accounts. That's the type of kingdom that is coming. And so it's all about living now with the master away. How do we live now with the master away? We're called to show our response by the way we behave while he's gone. What we're doing until he returns. How we use who we are and what we've been given to maximise his interests. We're to live for the Saviour. That's what it means to see Jesus clearly. Can you see Jesus clearly? If you can, are you showing that in how you're living until he returns? If Jesus, if you see him as king and saviour, as the one who died and rose so that you could be forgiven, then he deserves everything you have. That's got to be seen in the way you live now. All sorts of people are like the rebellious citizens. Jesus is their rightful king, but they choose to run their life their way instead. All sorts of people out there in Ashfield and Sydney and Australia and the world. All sorts of backgrounds. Atheist, humanist, agnostic, pagan, deist, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, rule breaker or committed rule keeper, disinterested or thoroughly religious, spiritual or Aussie, all sorts of people. But they're all treating Jesus in a certain way. 
Now is the time for them to be choosing their path. But what Jesus is saying is that the day is coming when the curtain will fall and judgment will begin and rebels will be destroyed. And so one aspect of Jesus' parable is to make sure that's not you, that you're not those rebellious citizens. But there's a second level. For those of us who have recognised the Saviour, who are his servants, our response is to serve, to offer Jesus everything, to say, like the servant in chapter 17, we are simply unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. That's our response. Our response is to make the most of what we have. It may be money, it may be time, it might be abilities, it might be intelligence or qualifications or career, it might be possessions, it might be emotions. How are you using what you have to further the king's interests? How well have you used this year to build up the assets of God's kingdom? What things have you grown? In your handouts this morning, you should have got a pink sheet of paper, hopefully. It's uh, written by Jonathan Edwards. He was an American pastor and author in the 1700s, a Puritan, a godly man, most probably America's greatest theologian. And he was a young man seriously committed to making the most of what God had given him, to using his minor. Perhaps best known for writing 70 resolutions. And here's how he begins. These are things he wrote for himself so that he could maximise his worth in the world for the kingdom. Being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they're agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. It's a good start, isn't it? So often we make resolutions and we stick them in a cupboard or in a filing cabinet and that's where they stay. That's not a bad start. Resolve, number one, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Number two, I'm not going to read them all, don't worry. (laughs) Resolve to be continually endeavouring to find out some new invention or contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. Number three, resolve if ever I shall fail and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Four, resolve never to do any manner of thing whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be nor suffer it if I can avoid it. Five, 
resolve never to lose one moment of time but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. I'll stop there, it's alright. They're pretty good, aren't they? That's, that's someone that wanted his whole life to be used by God. He had one minor, one life, and he wanted to spend it well. I've, uh, they're printed there for you. Can I encourage you to take some time to read them over uh, prayerfully? Appreciate the wisdom and the godliness and the, the passion behind them. And if there are five or six that strike a chord with you, then make them yours. Making the most of what you have. Jesus has given you one minor, one life. How are you going to use it? How are you going to respond to the Saviour who has given you everything? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. We thank you for the example of Zacchaeus, for the blind man who saw him and responded to him. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus and to respond to him appropriately, to give him all that we have. And we pray that you would use us individually, use us as a church to build your kingdom and to further your, uh, your assets. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.